The reading is taken from Romans chapter 5, verses 1 to 11, on page 1132 of your Bibles. That's Romans chapter 5, 1 to 11. Therefore, since we have been justified through faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom we have gained access by faith into his grace in which we now stand. And we boast in the hope of the glory of God. Not only so, but we also glory in our sufferings, because we know that suffering produces perseverance, perseverance character, and character hope. And hope does not put us to shame, because God's love has been poured out into our hearts through the Holy Spirit, who has been given to us. You see, at just the right time, when we were still powerless, Christ died for the ungodly. Very rarely will anyone die for a righteous person, though for a good person someone might possibly dare to die. But God demonstrates his own love for us in this. While we were still sinners, God died for us. Since we have now been justified by his blood, how much more shall we be saved from God's wrath through him? For if, while we were God's enemies, we were reconciled to him through the death of his son, how much more, having been reconciled, shall we be saved through his life? Not only is this so, but we also boast in God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom we have now received reconciliation. Sunday morning, congregation at 9.30, so many of you may not recognise me, we've been here many years, uh, but I've also been um, ordained as an Anglican minister for about 17 years, so it wasn't too much of a stretch when John asked me at the last minute to to preach this morning. Um, So we're going to look together at uh, Romans chapter 5, which uh, Sarah's just read for us. Let's pray before we do that, that God would help us. Heavenly Father, we thank you and praise you your word, the Bible. We thank you that you chose graciously to reveal yourself and your ways to us in this book. By your spirit, we pray that you'd help us now to understand and to grasp what you have written for us, that we may know you better, and that you would arouse faith in us for Jesus' sake. Amen. Well, these are opening chapters of Romans, Um, if you want to have those open. They present to us uh, the gospel in sort of forensic or legal terms. The sorts of things that Paul talks about in the early chapters of Romans are justice and witnesses and punishment and proof and that sort of thing. This is the language of Roman jurisprudence. Now, I don't think that's a problem as such. Every culture in the history of the world and every culture around the world today has some kind of legal justice system. So this can readily make sense to anyone. Uh, There's no need for us to therefore be wary about that kind of gospel presentation or ashamed of it. But there are other ways 
of looking at the same gospel, even within Romans itself. In Romans 5, uh, Paul tells us that there is even more to the good news of what God has done for us than this legal image of justification or acquittal. As important as that is, and it is very, very important, there is more that can be said about the gospel than that. So in Romans chapters 1 to 4, which we've been looking at uh, in previous weeks, Paul has been explaining things with reference to the Old Testament, unpacking sin and salvation in biblical terms, that the well-educated, biblically well-taught congregation at Rome would probably understand and agree with. As well as all the legal language, there's been lots of Old Testament temple imagery as well in the way that uh, Paul has spoken, such as when he describes Jesus' death as a propitiation, a sacrifice of atonement that takes away God's wrath against sin. And there's also been many quotations, you probably noticed them, uh, from Psalms and from Genesis. And in the last chapter, there was lots of talk about circumcision and the law of Moses. But as we now turn to chapter 5, and in the next few weeks we go on, um, Paul doesn't do that quite so much. He doesn't quote scripture or unpack what he's saying in religious Old Testament sort of language. And that's an interesting observation, which has led some people to speculate that this is what Paul means by the spiritual gift that he wants to bring to the Romans. Uh, That is, chapters 5 to 8 are Paul's particular way of explaining the good news to Gentiles to non-Jewish people. The kind of message that Paul is wanting to bring to Spain, which is where he's off to next, um, where people don't have the benefit of a, a biblical education and background, perhaps. That's the gospel that Paul wants the Romans to support him in preaching in this new area. So in chapters 5 to 8, he starts to unfold things in more personal, relational universal terms which might be clearer in a Gentile, non-Jewish context. That sounds quite convincing to me. It could be true, but it's certainly true that Paul wants to move on from talking about justification by faith alone. So I've got two points this morning. I know all good sermons are supposed to have three points and alliterate and all that, but I've got two points and there they are. We have hope because God's love transforms our suffering and we also have hope because God's love is not like our love so if you want to fill in that blank space on the uh, the outline the handout those are the two points first then let's look at what Paul says uh, about how we have hope because God's love transforms our suffering now suffering is just one of those normal issues in the Christian life, in this world, suffering. I don't know what your particular suffering is, financial difficulties, physical health issues, mental health struggles, particular temptations that you've been facing recently, grief. You can see why these passages, this passage we're looking at today has been so precious to Steve in the last few weeks. Failure, maybe, is something you're wrestling with. Doubt, despair, despondency. The agony that you know of praying for somebody and still praying for somebody 
who still doesn't look as if they're going to become a Christian any day soon, problems in church or at home or at work, or even persecution of one kind or another. We have all these issues. It's normal. And Paul says here, is this right? I mean, this this doesn't sound right at first, does it? He says, we glory in our sufferings. We rejoice in them. Now, he doesn't use quite the same word for rejoice there as he does in some of his other letters, like Philippians, for instance. Uh, It's a slightly different flavor to it. We glory in our sufferings. We boast in them. We big them up. That's what he's saying. He's saying we boast in the stresses and strains of life as Christians. Now, that seems hard to me. Does it seem hard to you? I mean, I can understand the idea of boasting in God, of glorying in what he has done for me. I get that. We've been doing that this morning. We've been rejoicing in him as we've sung together. But I don't get this bit so easily. How can I big up my sufferings and glory in them? What are you going on about, Paul? Because that is the application of this passage Verse 3, he he wants to give joyful confidence to faltering, downhearted Christians that will keep us going through the hard time that we're facing. I mean, what is all this that he says? Suffering produces perseverance, and perseverance produces character, and character produces hope. When I first read that, it sounded like Yoda from Star Wars to me. You know, you know the bit in Star Wars? Fear is the path to the dark side. Fear leads to anger. Anger leads to hate. Hate leads to suffering. But Paul is not Yoda. He disagrees with that. Paul is saying that suffering is inevitable and normal for those of us on the light side if you like. We will face trials and temptations and difficult seasons and opposition in various forms. And that could throw us off course. It could make us think that God doesn't love us anymore. I mean, if God loves me, why did he let somebody steal my computer recently and all the files that were on it? If God loves me, why did a fox eat my beloved, uh, my neighbor's beloved guinea pig? Why did he let that happen? If God loves me, why have I got a headache? Or as my um, nine-year-old daughter Lucy asked me recently, uh, after she bumped her head at school, Daddy, why doesn't God stop bad things happening to us? I know, right? Scary, isn't it? Nine years old and asking deep theological questions like that already. I think she'll be on to predestination before she gets to puberty. She told me later, as I was tucking her into bed, how very disappointed she was with my answer. (laughs) Seriously. She said, Daddy, she said, as I was tucking her into bed, Daddy, I noticed that you and Mummy really didn't answer my question about why God lets bad things happen to us. I'm like, uh, okay... Well, it is a very difficult question. There's, there's no easy answer to it. And I didn't want to fob you off with an easy answer. And she looked very puzzled, furrowed brow and everything, and looked very puzzled. And she said something like, but you're meant to be clever, Daddy. 
And there's not really very much you can say to that. But I said, well, I think, let's think about it, I think the answer always has something to do with Jesus, doesn't it? So she looked slightly encouraged at that point, as if I wasn't a completely hopeless case. And what happened to Jesus, I said? They killed him. Right. And I continued, even though it was way past bedtime at this point. So, Lucy, if God loves Jesus, and he still let them do that, there must have been a good reason for it, don't you think? Well, I suppose so, she said. Uh, He died to take the punishment for our sin. Yes, very good. Now, do you think that God has a reason for letting us suffer bad things as well? She looked very thoughtful at that, which is very cute when they're only nine. Is it to teach us something, she said? Yes, I think it must be. And I'd love to tell you more, but I can't really remember more of the details of that conversation, but that bit is burned into my memory. Uh, There was definitely something about why don't bruises heal on our heads more quickly and something like that. Um, And she's right, though, isn't she? As we puzzled it through together, we may not be able to work out all of the reasons all of the time, but God is trying to teach us something in our sufferings, to teach us to trust him, to teach us not to do the silly things that led to the suffering in the first place as well sometimes. But mostly, I think he wants to teach us that our suffering is not some meaningless tragedy to be avoided, but a means of gaining resilience, character, and hope in the providence of God. We rejoice, we boast in our sufferings. We can glory in them, knowing that suffering produces perseverance. Perseverance produces character, and character produces hope, which does not disappoint us. See, suffering is not the end. It is not the final answer. It's not the ultimate thing. If God is your friend, it doesn't mean you won't suffer in this life, here and now, because even Jesus suffered in this world, and we're just following in his footsteps. But our God is an expert at turning bad into good. So, if we get knocked down, we get up again. I call it chumba-wumba theology, you know. I get knocked down, but I get up again. And we can keep doing that, Because we know it will only be doing us good. Because we know for an absolute certainty that one day all the bad things will come undone. The fact that Romans and the Bible generally considers our biggest problem, our biggest problem, um, not to be those sort of personal suffering issues, but to do with God his wrath against sin and his judgment, rather than, you know, all the pressures and troubles that I face. The fact that that is our most important problem and we can relativize everything else, that's enlightening. Because my biggest problem is not how I can cope with my kids. It's not depression. It is not work pressures. My biggest problem as a human being is the impending judgment of God. Get that sorted, though, and all these other things can be put into perspective. And they're not there to defeat us, 
but to train us and refine us. Temptations and suffering and death. He's justified you. And he will glorify you. So don't you think he'll keep you going in between the two as well? The cross has seen to that. Because of what Jesus has done for us, even death, the very worst thing that can happen to us, death has been transformed. Death is no longer a disaster if you're a Christian. It is a doorway. So you don't need to be strong. It says here he died for the weak. Because the suffering of Christ means our sufferings are put into a completely different context. Just think, I mean, how much more we tend to pray when times are tough and we're really up against it. If everything was going well all the time, well, we wouldn't pray so much, maybe, and we certainly wouldn't feel the benefit and enjoy the daily blessings which God pours upon us. Those sufferings, then, that happen to us in our lives, they don't overturn my confidence in God, far from it. They reinforce that. They give me fortitude that is only strengthened further by trials. Don't judge such things by outward appearance then. What you're going through may be terrible and awful, but God designed it for your good. Think of the alternative if that wasn't true. As I said before, those who have faith also have hope because of God's love. But let me just repeat that with a small change. Only those who have faith have hope. Only those with faith have hope. Because there isn't any hope outside of Jesus, is there? No eternal glory. Nothing to look forward to. But we may have dangers, toils and snares and that sort of thing for a bit. But when we've been there 10,000 years, bright shining as the sun, there'll be more days to look forward to as well. A billion more years to look forward to in heaven without dying or crying or any hurting anymore. So what I'm saying is those who have faith can have hope because of God's love. We have hope because God's love transforms our suffering. So that's the the first point. My second point uh, is this. We also have hope because God's love is not like our love. We also have hope because God's love is not like our love. Paul again is telling us this in sort of relational, personal terms. And there are lots of ways we could um, unpack this, but let's just try this. Think about what this passage says we were. What was our relationship with God like to start with, according to Romans 5, 1 to 11? It says we were alienated enemies at war with God, ungodly sinners under his wrath. So verse 10 describes us as God's enemies. If while we were enemies. That's interesting because that's not how most people see it, is it? But God sees humanity as enemies. Because the way that humanity is, the way we live, 
the way we behave ourselves in his world, inebriated by the sweetness of our sin, it is clear that we hate him. That's not just apathy or indifference. That is war. And since this is his world, he's not going to allow that to go on forever. We are alienated from our creator and at war with him, even as some of us even profess not to be all that bothered about God and I don't believe in him anyway. We are at war with him. I don't believe in God and I'm very angry with him, is what some people say. What else does it say here? It says we are ungodly sinners. That's Romans 5. So Christ died for the ungodly in verse 6. Did you see that? He died for sinners, verse 8. People who deserve judgment to face his wrath, verse 9. So, you know, they look down on us, all those angels in heaven, and they're asking, who are all these people on earth? And back comes the reply that they are alienated enemies of God, at war with the Almighty, sinners who provoke him by their hypocrisy, their wickedness, and their indifference, who therefore only have his righteous anger to look forward to. And yet, according to this passage, something's now changed. Some of those people have faith. They believe and trust in God's promise. God has justified them, even though they were guilty, even though they were guilty of the most treacherous crimes. Verse 1 and verse 9. See, at the beginning and near the end of the passage, it says we are justified right with God and those justified people are also reconciled and at peace with God with access to grace and rejoicing in hope so you see in verse one he starts off by saying you know we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ what kind of peace is that what kind of peace it's peace between God and humanity but there's no peace for the wicked so the angels how can they have peace? There's no peace for the wicked. Another citizen of heaven replies, well, you're right. There is no peace without righteousness. True. But the Holy One has declared them righteous in his sight. So now they can be at peace. That's surprising to some of us because we don't realize this, that we should be disquieted and disturbed if we're sinners. We should be. If we're drunk on our own personal sins of choice, we should have that aching angst in our conscience, screaming out all the time, something's wrong, something's wrong, it's not right. But for some reason, now, we can have peace. Now, the law doesn't provide that peace. No amount of good works are going to achieve that kind of peace. Do you think it might? If you think that good works can achieve peace, then please write a check to the Lee Gators Holiday Fund and give it to me. I will consider that a good work. And if it assuages your conscience, wonderful. It won't work, but I'm very happy for you to try. 10,000 should do it. No, you can't get peace with God that way. But having been justified by faith alone, we do have this peace, it says. And do you see verses 10 and 11? That we are also reconciled to God 
For if while we were enemies, we were reconciled to God by the death of his son, how much more, now that we are reconciled, shall we be saved through his life? And more than that, we also rejoice or boast or glory in God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom we've received that reconciliation. So it's because of this, because we trust in his promise, we can have access to God himself. We've been ushered into the throne room and can stand before God, not only clothed in the righteousness of Christ, but enjoying his grace and his favour as his privileged friends. The angels look on. No wonder these humans have hope, they say. They've been justified by faith alone. They sinned and fell short of the glory of God. But Jesus has given them the hope of glory again. And now they stand with us in God's grace and favour. How can that be, says another angel? How does God turn his enemies into his friends? How does he turn alienated enemies at war, ungodly sinners under wrath, into reconciled friends? at peace with God, with access to grace, rejoicing in hope. How do you do it? Well, the answer is that love defeats hate. Love defeats hate. God's love found a way. God so loved the world that he gave his only son for us. That's how he showed his love That wrath-absorbing death of Christ in our place changed everything for us. Verse 8 says, God demonstrates his love for us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. We have hope because God's love is not like our love. God's love is shown to us by Jesus dying on the cross. And it is shed abroad in our hearts by the Holy Spirit given to us, verse 5. And what an effect that has. You can see the effect in verse 2. It says, we boast in the hope of the glory of God. Verse 11, we boast in God through our Lord Jesus Christ. We rejoice. That's why we started this service by singing that song. Rejoice. Rejoice. Because he's shown his love for us on the cross. We big up God. We boast in his achievement. We glory in the hope of glory. And what a change that all is. Because we weren't good, righteous friends of God. We were enemies. And yet Jesus died for us. But people just don't do that, do they? Normal people. They don't just do that. Sometimes you do hear stories of people dying for somebody else to save them they might be motivated by love or by some great cause Um, that film uh, saving private ryan you remember that with tom hanks and his squads they go looking for private ryan so that he can be sent home to his mother because she's lost all her other children in the war they didn't know private ryan themselves they didn't love him But they were compelled by duty and honour and the great American virtue of motherhood and that sort of thing. In the city of London, where I used to work, there's a a church called St. Bottles Aldersgate, not far from St. Paul's Cathedral, if you're ever around there, go and have a look. Just behind the church, there's this memorial. Uh, There's a picture of it coming for you, a memorial. It's an amazing 
memorial. It's called The Memorial to Heroic Self-Sacrifice. There's a Wikipedia page about it if you want to go and look it up later. The Memorial to Heroic Self-Sacrifice. Now, I preached at that church um, several times about 10 years ago, and I took some pictures of the memorial, which I've often looked at since, and here's an excuse to use them. This memorial is about 100 years old and consists of uh, three rows of small, hand-painted, glazed ceramic tiles on which are written in agonizing brevity the stories of about 50 ordinary people who gave their lives to save others. Now, it can be an immensely moving experience to stand there and to read those plaques. Here's some of the pictures I've got. John Slade, Private 4th Battalion Royal Fusiliers of Stepney, when his house caught fire, saved one man, and dashing upstairs to rouse others, lost his life. Robert Wright, police constable of Croydon, entered a burning house to save a woman, knowing that there was petroleum stored in the cellar. An explosion took place, and he was killed. Ellen Donovan of Lincoln Court, Great Wild Street, rushing, rushed into a burning house to save a neighbour's children and perished in the flames. David Selves, age 12, it says, off Woolwich, supported his drowning playfellow and sank with him, clasped in his arms. John Clinton, age 10, drowned near London Bridge, trying to save a companion younger than himself. Henry James Bristow, aged eight at Walthamstow, on December 30th, 1890, saved his little sister's life by tearing off her flaming clothes, but caught fire himself and died of burns and shock. The story of Solomon Gallerman, aged 11, I can't read because I just won't be able to do it. Hope you can read the text yourself on the screen. Look it up if you can't. There were just a couple of others that particularly caught my eye. Uh, This is the one about John Cranmer of Cambridge, age 23, a clerk in London County Council who was drowned near Ostend while saving the life of a stranger and a foreigner. Immigrants. And uh, G. Garnish, finally, a young clergyman who lost his life in endeavouring to rescue a stranger from drowning at Putney. Well, friends, what about this one? Jesus Christ, age 33, Jerusalem. While we were still weak at the right time, Christ died for the ungodly. For one will scarcely die for a righteous person, though perhaps for a good person one might dare even to die. But God shows his love for us in this, that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. You know, sometimes there is that kind of heroic self-sacrifice in the world. People do occasionally dare to die, to give their lives for others, usually for their friends or their family, sometimes for duty, sometimes even for strangers or foreigners that they do not even know. We rightly 
remember their heroism, celebrate their courage and their sacrifice. But we can have real, eternal hope because God's love is not like our love. God demonstrates his love for us in that while we were still his enemies, Christ died for us. While we were enemies, Christ died for us. When we were ungodly, undeserving, unworthy, unlovable, God loved us and gave his only son for us. While we were shaking our puny little fists in his loving face, sticking up two fingers to his kindness and his care, while we were running rampant through his world without a thought for our creator, dismissing him with a casual grunt or a hypocritical nominal religion or a sneer. God showed his love for us then in sending Christ to die for us. In, in that film, Saving Private Ryan, Tom Hanks's character, Captain John Miller, gave his life, along with others, to save Private Ryan. Do you remember, if you've seen the film, what his final words were to Ryan on the bridge as he died? As he's about to die this agonising death, he looks at Private Ryan and he says, earn this. Earn it. And at the end of the film, we cut to a scene of an elderly Ryan at the grave of Captain Miller. Tears in his eyes, he says, every day I think about what you said to me on the bridge that day. I've tried to live my life the best that I could. I hope that that was enough. I hope that at least in your eyes I earned what you have done for me. Isn't that moving? Isn't that painful? What kind of torture is that? What kind of torture is that? That's a horrendous way to end a film like that. Earn it. Make every single day of your life a living hell as you try to be worthy of the blood of all those young men who died so you could live. How awful. How paralysing that must have been. The guilt would have been immense. Am I doing enough? Am I good enough? Have I earned it yet? Is there more that I should do? That is old-fashioned, dreary moralism. Yuck! But God shows his love for us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. You can't earn that. It's too much. There's nothing you can do that would ever be good enough. I mean, what could you possibly do that would merit the death of the unique, glorious, beautiful, holy, perfect, spotless Lamb of God? Nothing. You can't earn it. You can't pay God back. And he's not asking you to. Isn't that good? He's not asking you to. He did it because he loves you and to give you hope. And as I finish, think about this over lunch today. If Christ died for his enemies, just think what he's going to do for his friends. 
What he's done is enough, not just for one-off, once-and-for-all justification, but for all time. How can I know that he still loves me? Well, how can he not, since he has gone to such lengths to make you his friend? No power of hell, no scheme of man can ever pluck you from his hands. Let's bow our heads and pray. Let's just spend a moment in quiet, reflecting on this passage together. And then I'll close in prayer in a few moments. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your love for us. Thank you that you loved us even though we're not worthy of that, that we didn't earn it, we don't merit it, you don't love us because of our great potential or something like that, but that you loved us and sent your Son your precious son, to die in our place for our sins, even while we were still your enemies. Father, we rejoice in what you have done for us and in the way that it puts into perspective all the sufferings and difficulties that we face in this life. Please keep us going. May our suffering produce perseverance, character, and hope until we reach the shores of a better country and rejoice with you there for all eternity. In Jesus' name we pray.